This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to another episode of Money and Markets. I'm Danny Houston, and with me this week is Dan Coatsworth. Hi. Our inbox continues to fill up with pensions questions, which means it's time for Tom to pick one out of the virtual post bag. Tom, welcome back. Hello. We've got two guests on this week's show. Temple Bar Investment Trust Fund Manager Ian Lance will be joining us to talk about why people have got it wrong on BP and why Royal Mail shares have gone bananas. Tom will be talking to money journalist Iona Bain about her new book, which aims to demystify savings, pensions and investing for younger people. And we will also be talking about Deliveroo's disappointing start to life on the stock market and how to claim some money back if you've been working from home. Plus, Jenny Owen will be with us at the end of the show with the pandemic era memorabilia that could be worth a lot of money in the future. Hi, Jen. Hello. First up, uh, Dan, what's been going on in markets in the past week? Well, we've reached the end of the first quarter of the year and there's some quite interesting uh, movements here. So uh, the standout performer um, for the first three months of 2021 across Asia, Europe and the US has been Germany's DAX index. So if you'd had your money in the DAX, you would have made 9.3% in Q1. And that's actually been driven by auto stocks like Daimler and BMW. But the real superstar has been Volkswagen, which has kind of stolen the limelight from Tesla with its electric vehicle plans. Now, VW shares are up 61% so far this year. The company is planning six European battery factories by 2030, and it aims to sell a million electric or hybrid cars this year. And I love that April Fool that they played because it came out too early, didn't it? And they said that they were renaming Volkswagen. Yes, I know. And I think so so many so many journalists <laughs> fell for it. Um and thought, okay, because you know, just double check the date. Yeah, it's not the first of April, it's fine. Right, it must be true. And it wrote all these stories. I thought I think I've seen two or three different versions from The Guardian saying it's it's a joke. It's not a joke. Uh, oh sorry, it, it, it turns out it wasn't a joke. So. <laughs> I think it could have worked, though. I mean, that would have been great branding. Yeah. So the US markets have been mixed in the first quarter. The S&P's done okay, 7% gain. Um, the best performer's been Victoria's Secret owner L Brands, up nearly 70%. Um, in Asia, the, uh, Japan's Nikkei is up 7.1%, but China's SSE index is down nearly 2%. There's some concerns that equities in uh, across the, the main markets in China perhaps overvalued, um, certainly vulnerable to rising US bond yields. And they, you know, I guess it's coming back after a very big rally um, off the back of China's sort of economic recovery from the pandemic. And as for the UK, the FTSE 100 is up 2.9% with banks and miners leading the way. Why is it that the FTSE is lagged behind some of the other markets, Dan? Well, I guess it has lagged, but not by too much, though. I guess you know here this is investors are being flocking to banks and miners. So they see them as as part of this sort of value investing style that's in fashion at the moment. They're a good source of dividends. Um, you know, miners have been rising on commodities boom. Um, banks have been rising because they're expecting interest rates to go up sooner uh, rather than later, and and that'd be good for their earnings. But I guess it's kind of what. It's, it's all to do with the type of companies that you find in the, the, the in the market. So the UK is made up traditionally of um, perhaps people call it old economy, 
style businesses and uh but then again you look at germany you know car car makers you know that's, that's old economy really if you if you're comparing that in relative terms to sort of the tech superstars that have been powering stuff like the us but um you know i guess for, for all the stuff that's going up um the uk is actually being sort of pulled back by by other sectors that aren't in demand so you know big defensive companies like um unilever and Reckitt, perhaps not not really on investors radars at the moment they're being asked to pay high prices for ultimately very slow earnings growth well, it's been trying to attract tech superstars, the London Stock Exchanges. And after what's been going on with Deliveroo, they might be wondering about why they were choosing to do that. Um, because it finally joined the stock market, chose London. There was a lot of uh, second guessing as to whether it would go with London or go with the US. Um, but it hasn't been the hit that some people expected. In fact, certain members of this parish have renamed the stock Flopperoo. I've seen some pretty interesting tweets, lots of fantastic names that people have been having a go at, and it has tanked down 30% in the first few hours of trading. So that wipes £2.2 billion off the value of the company and prompts a whole lot of questions. I'm going to press rewind a second and look back at the furore surrounding the initial valuation because this got a lot of people talking. It set the value at between £4.60 and £3.90 a share, which valued the company at £8.8 billion. I know your eyebrows were raised down when you saw that initial valuation. Yeah, I mean, there's a loss-making company and... um... But but on one hand, you know, it is surprising. But on the other hand, people seem to have been over the years happy to pay up for a company that perhaps has got a lot of promise in the future. And you know, certainly when you've got a business that's backed by Amazon, um, you know, Amazon's seen something there. Uh, you, you would have thought that other investors have been there. But that actually was a bit of a red flag to some people. The fact that it needed this multi-million pound bailout from Amazon at the start of the pandemic just to keep it going. And it was a pretty big valuation compared to what it was valued at just back in November. And there's also, of course, been a lot of concern about the structure, how it pays its riders, worry that it wasn't sustainable because, of course, we saw Uber lose its court case against workers. And that turned off a number of investors. They were concerned about the working practice. They were also concerned that down the line, delivery was going to have to change its pay structure and perhaps have to pay some legal costs. Fast forward to a couple of days ago, and Deliveroo said they were going to float at the lower end of the price range, £3.90 a share. So that's right at the bottom of that price range, valuing the company at £7.6 million. Now, they said it was because of market volatility, and it has been a volatile market this week. They said that they were looking to maximise long-term value for its shareholders. And so to today, well, a few minutes ago, Roo was trading at £2.86 a share. Dan, when was the last time you saw an IPO tank this badly? Well, I, I recall Aston Martin didn't have a very good start to its um, stock market debut, but I think go back to Uber, that was down 7% on the first day. Um, the, the company that makes Candy Crush computer game, King Digital, that fell 15%. Um, but actually, the one the one that strikes me is Facebook. This this floated at thirty eight dollars um, back in twenty twelve, and you know, fast forward, fast forward uh, three or four months, the share price had nearly halved to about seventeen or eighteen dollars. But 
today it trades at $288. You know, it had a bad start, but it soon won over investors. And so, you know, I think Deliveroo's had, had a, you know, definitely had a bad start, but, you know, give it time, I think. I think just it, it, there's a, perhaps a knee-jerk reaction here to just on what's happening um, with some negative publicity ahead of the IPO. Well, that might be uh, good to hear for some people who've not been able to trade today because, of course, not everyone who got their shares in the IPO has been able to do that. Retail investors allocated shares through primary bid have to wait until Wednesday before they can do anything but watch because that's when everyone else can then start to get involved. Also, the thousands of riders who got bonuses in shares, up to £10,000 those bonuses would have been worth in shares, would have been, let's see what they're worth come Wednesday. There's been lots of comment on social media, but of course, as I say, it's a long time between now and the 7th of April. A lot can happen. Some investors are being pretty bullish, reckoning, as you've just said, that potentially in the long term, they could reap rewards. But it is a bit of a big old mess today. And it doesn't really do a great deal to give confidence to other tech businesses thinking of floating or of government plans to try and attract them here. What sort of impact do you think that this might have on the Chancellor's big plans, Dan? Well, it's not ideal, is it? I mean, the, the Chancellor wanted to encourage sort of more entrepreneurs to list their company in the UK, relax the rules a bit. Um, so with, with Deliveroo, obviously the founders got shares that give him 20 times the voting power of investors. And so this is this idea of dual class shares. It's, it's not really familiar to the UK, but actually it's been around for ages in, in other places like the US. So you know, Facebook, Alphabet, which is the company that owns Google, um, and even Ford Motor, well, these companies have got two classes of shares. But so I think it, it's not great. But I don't think you can sort of say just from one company's um, disappointing start that that's it. That no one's wanting to come and, and join the, the market from now on. Dual class—that's pretty tricky to say, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, there is a slight. Very slight possibility that Deliveroo could call the whole thing off. They've got until Wednesday to change their mind. Can't think of a time when it's happened, but they could, though whether or not they'd get a better reception or, more importantly, a better price at a later date or, say, in the US, I think it's more likely that they'll dig in for the long haul and try and prove their critics wrong Um, I mean, it's going to be a really interesting watch the next couple of weeks, isn't it, Dan? Yes, absolutely. Particularly, we've got a lot of companies that are in the pipeline waiting to join the market. And um, I'm sure there'll be lots of investment bankers and advisors trying to reassure them that, you know, don't worry about Deliveroo. There's been plenty of examples of um, successful IPOs this year, like Dr. Martins and, and Moonpig and um, but let's see if that does sort of uh, make people think twice about perhaps coming to market now, or whether they want to wait till um, sort of the delivery disaster is sort of faded to people's memories. So BP and Royal Mail, until recently, were very much out of favour with investors. But if you'd taken a contrarian view, you could have made quite a bit of money owning those shares in recent months as they've been boosted by a rally in so-called value stocks. So one person who did spot the opportunity was Ian Lance. He's a fund manager from Temple Bar Investment Trust. So, Ian, before we talk about these stocks, I think it might be worth putting the value investing rally in some context for listeners. Is, is there a really easy way to describe what's been going on and why value stocks are now in fashion? Um, 
Yes, there is. You're absolutely right. Value have had value as a style of investing has had a pretty awful few years. Actually, people have been much more enamoured towards growth stocks, technology stocks. I suppose is a good example of that, and they just haven't really been interested in things like mining stocks, energy stocks, and so on and so forth. So you know, value stocks are are basically stocks where the person buying them believes that they're buying the the shares for less than the underlying value of the, of the business, uh, to put it in very simple terms. The, the problem with value investing um, is that shares only really trade below their, their, their true worth when um, there's a load of bad news around, because um, it's that that causes people to sort of panic and sell shares for, for less than their worth. Um, and, and that's really what we saw last year um, in spades, I guess, when the, when the pandemic broke out, when we had, the, we had lockdown. Uh, nobody wanted to own cyclical stocks, uh, and everyone wanted to own financial, uh, sort of defensive stocks, and that drove a huge dispersion between uh, so-called value stocks and so-called growth stocks. And of course, as soon as the uh, vaccine uh, news came out, th- that unwound it, and it unwound very, very rapidly. And that's why we've seen some of the sorts of moves that we have done in in the, some of the sorts of shares that we're talking about today. Yeah, is is it because investors are thinking actually? They've got the, these value stocks now have more immediate growth prospects because of the the, the economy is potentially going to be reopening soon. That, that that's certainly one thing. Um, if you if you uh, if you look historically at what sort of sectors have done well during a uh, a reflationary environment, so it's a, a rebound in economic activity, and it looks likely that's what we'll have this year. It's been sectors like energy, uh, materials, financials, uh, retailers. Th- those are the stocks that have done better. And, and actually, the stocks which lag are the more defensive ones, technology, healthcare, consumer staples. So that, that that's certainly a big part of it, I think. But the second part of it is that the valuations of these stocks j- just got absolutely ridiculous last year. I mean, our, our favourite example of this is... Um, would you believe it if I told you that the share price of NatWest Group, which obviously used to be called Royal Bank of Scotland, at one point last year, it fell to the same level that it was in 2009 when the government had to step in and rescue it. That That is how bearish people have become yeah. of these sorts of companies. Yeah. But you, you mentioned energy being one of the sectors that um, you typically see in a rebound. Obviously, BP is in that area. But actually, this is a company where people has kind of gone off it quite quickly, whether it's been to do with the, um, the dividend payments less attractive and just generally people losing interest in oil because they're paying much more attention to environmental matters. But I mean, what what just you've taken the opposite view, I presume, by owning these shares. Is it because you think that the market's just been too negative or do you think you bought them because you see um, this opportunity as the economy reopens? No, we we see a lot of opportunity. I, I, I suppose um, we, we, the, the danger we're talking about a company like BP is that people uh, immediately think, God, that that's incredibly boring and don't want to listen to it. So I, I wanted to just start with an analogy um, because I think the situation in energy companies today is analogous to the situation in tobacco companies back in 2000. So anyone who remembers 2000 will remember that that was a time when everyone wanted to invest in internet stocks. Nobody wanted to invest in so-called old economy stocks. And so a company like British American Tobacco, actually the, the share price of it was about £3.50 uh, back then. And, and people would be absolutely amazed if I told you that it, it went on to, to peak over £50, uh, sort of 17 years later. 
But I think what the, the really interesting thing is that back then people were saying the same sort of things about tobacco that they are saying about energy today. So people were saying it's an industry in structural decline. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't got the same sort of growth prospects as the exciting technology companies. And to a certain extent, they were right. But, but, but actually, if you look at what happened over the next decade, what, what, what happened was that although their top line didn't grow that much, they took a bit of cost out. So, they, so their operating profits grew a bit faster. They generate a lot of cash like the energy companies. So they bought back a load of their shares. They paid a very high dividend and that dividend grew. And so over the next de- decade, as a, um, as, a, as a shareholder, you were rewarded with 20% per annum total return, which is an absolutely fantastic rate of growth, you know, a, a, a sort of rate of growth that most people can only dream of today. And I think the, the energy companies are, are, are similar to that today. Um, it, it is an industry which people seem to hate at the moment. People think it's got no future. Um, and I think that that, 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 whole, that sentiment has been completely overdone. So we have a similar situation where the, the valuations of these energy companies reached very, very depressed levels last year. So, again, if I told you that the dividend yield of BP um, got, got to about 9 or 10% on the cut dividend last year, that, you know, that is how bearish people were. And I think, I think you're, you, you touched on a point there. A, a, a lot of... Um, Green investors, sustainable investors have been selling uh, shares in the energy companies or they've been excluding them from their portfolios. Um, and that on its own has driven, you know, dri- driven this very, very depressed valuation. Uh, and actually, we as investors think that the, the energy companies are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And what I mean by that is they have clearly changed the way they're going to operate. They're going to invest a lot in renewables. Um, and, and, you know, they, they've all committed to uh, getting to net zero by 2050. So actually, I think you can invest in these companies um, and, and, you know, believe that you are doing the right thing from a sustainable point of view. And so if we look at Royal Mail, again, this is a company where it joined the stock market and initially there was quite a lot of excitement about it. Then... I don't know, it just came to kept disappointing, in particularly over the last couple of years. It's had big plans to make the company more efficient, but yet it's, it continues to say we're behind schedule on that. Letter volumes are falling. It's it's fighting sort of labour unions, and it just operates in a very competitive market. Yet, hang on, the shares are up more than hundred percent since November. So clearly, um, someone who was to take a very contrarian view tail end of last year would would have uh you know enjoyed quite big returns but so at what point did you get involved and, and see the opportunity there um we, we've held royal mail for, for for over a year um now we, we started managing temple bar in november of last year so um you know temple temple bar were lucky enough to get into royal mail at about 227 uh they're, they're, they're 509 today um, but I suppose if I go back to what, what initially attracted us to, to Royal Mail, um, we, we thought it was one of these classic examples where people were um, focusing on the wrong bit of the business. You're, you're absolutely right. People, when, when you say Royal Mail, people immediately think letters and they immediately tend to think, well, that must be a dying industry. You know, why on earth would I want to invest in something like that? And, and what they don't look at at all is the parcels business. And there are two elements to this. Um, the first one is they own a business called GLS, which is a, a huge European uh, parcels business. And at the time that we bought um, our shares in Royal Mail, we actually thought that the, the group was so low, lowly valued um, that the entire market cap of Royal Mail 
was worth less than just the value of the GLS business. So that, that you know that is how undervalued we thought it was. Um, so that's 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 the first business. The second business is obviously Parcel Force. So this is the UK parcels business, and Royal Mail have fifty percent market share of the of the UK parcels. And it, I, ironically, Royal Mail has actually been a sort of a, a lockdown beneficiary. So if I told you that over the last over the last nine months, UK parcel volumes are up thirty one percent, UK parcel revenues up thirty seven, GLS volumes up twenty three, and GLS revenues up twenty five percent. Actually, you've got a big chunk of the business which is growing very, very rapidly, um, and, and and again, we think that you know the the, the valuation just of those parcels businesses may, means that the the UK letters business is is, is basically in for negative. So you're, so you're not paying anything at all. And I suppose just to complete the picture, we do believe actually that management will be able to take costs out and they'll be they will be able to uh, return to profitability in the in the in the UK business. And therefore, despite the fact that the shares have, you know, have already gone up quite significantly from the lows, actually, we, we do think that there's still significant upside of Royal Mail. I can definitely see um, lots of activity at the moment. Still lots of people stuck at home and not working in an office. But um, as restrictions are eased, um, it's been indicated in the, in the coming months, what do you think might happen to parcel volumes i i wonder if, if royal mail have had have been in a very sort of big sweet spot and they've had the best of this uh earnings boost and, and it actually might be very um harder to replicate this these kind of levels of demand in the coming months and certainly into 2022 i think you're right to a certain extent that that um that, that probably that you know they have they have had some tailwinds but i, I guess i would t- i would say two things one is it seems unlikely to me that um, online retail sales are going away anytime soon. I think you know even if some of us do go back to the office two or three days a week, um, I, th- I think that move to shopping online is here to stay. Um, and if, and if it is, then people are going to need to have parcels delivered to their home. So that's that that's a that's a secular trend. That's that's not going away. The second point is that I would say um, you, you know you are you're still not paying for that growth. It, you know it's it. it the shares trade on a price earnings ratio of about 11, 11 times this year. You, you compare that to some, you know, to some of the multiples of other growth stocks uh, within the market. Um, so you're, you know, you're really not paying for that growth. So I, th- I think, you know, you, you, you have got a point. They have, they have been a beneficiary, but I, I think it is a, a long-term secular winner. And, and I think the valuation is still attractive. Brilliant. Ian, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Now, the one thing you really shouldn't wait for is to start saving for a pension. And it is pensions time. I feel like we need a gong or an alarm bell or something because Tom's been hard at work pulling together an answer to a listener question. Um, It's the turn of listener Matt. Now, he asks, my wife had until this tax year a Halifax PIP, which was tax paid investment similar to a life policy. Income tax was paid within the policy at basic rate, meaning no tax was due on the gains, unless the gains push the holder into a higher tax band. So Matt wants to know if his wife can contribute more to her SIP this year on the basis of this gain income for which tax has been paid within the policy. If her gain was £10,000, can she pay this £10,000 into her SIP and get tax relief. Now, Matt also says his wife doesn't work, 
only has a very small income from book royalties. So she's only paid £2,880 into her SIP this tax year and plans to do the same at the start of April. Okay, thanks, Danny. I'm very much in favour of a pensions gong. If we could sort that out for next time I'm on the podcast, <laughs> I'd appreciate We're that. on it. Um, we get lots of questions around um, what what counts as relevant earnings in, to, in relation to how much you can pay each year into a, into a pension scheme. So I'll explain what that is first and how the annual allowance works, and then I'll look specifically at this question. So the amount that you can personally save in a pension each year is restricted to 100% of your relevant earnings. And I'll get, to, I'll get on to that towards the the end of my, my reply. Um, that's in addition to the £40,000 annual allowance, which I think a lot of list, listeners will, will be familiar with. That £40,000 annual pensions allowance incorporates both your personal contributions, your employer contributions, and any tax relief that you get from the government as well. So as a quick example, um, someone who has £30,000 of UK earnings in 2020-21 can personally pay £30,000. And again, that's including tax relief into a pension in that tax year. If you pay more than your annual allowance in a tax year into your pension, then you'll be hit with a tax charge by HMRC, which will take back the upfront tax relief that you've been granted. Um, If you don't have any relevant earnings or your earnings are below £3,600, as seems to be the case in the case of uh, Matt's wife here, then you can still pay £3,600 in total into a pension. So that includes tax relief. So £2,880 as a personal contribution topped up by £720 tax relief. Now, getting onto that point on UK relevant earnings and specifically investment returns, returns, which seems to be the case here. Now, investment income doesn't count as UK relevant earnings. So if an investment in like like the like the investment highlighted here or any other investment delivered returns of say five thousand or ten thousand pounds that can't be added to the income that you receive for example through employment or through self-employment to figure out how much you can pay each year into a pension so the things that count as relevant earnings are the are, are things like your earned income and benefits in kind so things that you get in exchange for an earned income and obviously self-employed income as well also things like bonuses and commission and overtime, those kind of things will count towards your relevant earnings when working out how much you can pay into a pension, but things like investment returns won't count and things like income from a buy-to-let property won't count either. So some difficulties around what does and doesn't count, but it, it, there, are, there are very clear rules in place for, from HMRC and it's worth worth that. Ha- having a look, look around your, your provider's website to have see explanations of what can and can't be included there. A lot of people will now be a year into working from home, and that means their electricity and gas bills are likely to be higher. Unfortunately, there is one way of getting some money back. There is, and um, I've certainly been looking into it because I don't know if you've noticed your electricity and gas bills going up and up with particularly the kids at home as well as working from home, which my husband and I have both been doing for a full year now. So you can basically claim tax relief on six pounds a week. So if you are getting your pay through PayAYE, then you can either get your employer to give you six pounds a week for towards those expenses, or you can go on the government website. It's a really easy website to fill in and you can claim tax relief on that. Now, if you are 
a standard rate taxpayer, then it's 60 quid. I mean, it's not a huge amount, but it's nothing to be sniffed at. And if you're a higher rate taxpayer, that's £125. Additional rate taxpayers can claim £140 because it's uh, basically the, the amount of tax that you would pay on that £6 a week. So it, it's an easy claim. And if you are putting in a self-assessment tax form, then you can also claim through that. If you're self-employed, then you can claim for other things as well. So it's a bit of a different mechanism. I would also say that if you've incurred any additional expenses and you can prove that you've incurred those expenses, then you can also put in a claim for that, but it is slightly more complicated. So Iona Bain runs the Young Money blog, and she's written a new book called Own It that aims to help young people become better at managing their money. So as the youngest member of the team, we thought Tom would benefit from talking to Iona the most. So we packed him off to meet her and see what help she could give him. So Tom began by asking Iona about the inspiration behind her book. Let's talk a bit about the the book and and what what was it that drove you to to write it so obviously you've been a you've been a blogger on young people's issues for for the best part of 10 years now was that was the feeling that young people weren't as represented as, as perhaps they they could be in in personal finance generally in the, and in the way that personal finance is written about yes that was definitely one of the reasons why i started my blog in 2011 although another big reason was that I had no idea about money myself I was completely clueless I was originally a musician so I trained as a musician and thought I was going to be a professional musician for the first 22 years of my life Uh, and in my early 20s I did what any young person you know what whatever their god-given right is is to go out and pursue their dreams so I wanted to be a pop star so I decided I'd try and do that for a couple of years didn't really work out and I had to find a plan b and um, my dad was a business and finance journalist before he retired in 2016 and he never talked to my brother and I about money we we just always were allowed to find our own way in the world and you know pursue our own interests but then when my own musical career faltered, he said to me, well, why don't you start a blog about money? And I said to him, why would I do that? I know nothing about money and I'm not interested in it. And he said, you're joking. You're, you're obsessed with money. And I said, based on what? He said, well, you know, it's all you ever talk about with 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 me and your mum. You know, you're always talking about how you want to become financially independent, how incredibly you wor- worried you are about the future. And this was a few years after the financial crash. So... This was at a time when young people were really struggling to find jobs. The only decent opportunities were unpaid or internships that only well-off young people could afford with families who could support them. And young people couldn't afford to live independently because the cost of housing was rising, the cost of living was rising. And all these issues were in the background at that time. And I was talking about them a lot and becoming really exercised about them and feeling quite annoyed that really these issues weren't being discussed in the media and that there weren't young people really given a platform to discuss these issues. So my dad said, well, why don't you start writing about them? And once he took that through with me and I realized what his logic was, I thought, yes, actually, he's right. I I am interested in this area um, and I I do need a plan B in terms of my work. And who knows, this might lead to something in the future. But in the meantime, 
I'll just write it and learn about money along the way. And, you know, 10 years on, here I am now. And I guess the reason why I wanted to write the book is because I wrote my first book in 2016. And that was very much about the basics of money and helping young people really think more carefully about their relationship with money and their attitudes to money. And then as the years went by, I thought, hang on a second, young people need to go to the next level with their finances, especially millennials who are now maybe in their late twenties, early thirties, they might have built up some savings, but they'll feel frustrated with low interest rates. They'll be looking at the stock market and their pension and wondering how does this stuff work and how can I get in on this? And unfortunately, it's not very easy to find out the answer to those questions because young people, for the most part, can't really afford professional financial advice unless they've got a huge lump sum to invest. And the internet is an absolute wild west of information that you're not quite sure you can always rely on. So I felt that it was time for a book to be um, giving all this information and help in one place but also written from a young perspective and written in an entertaining and accessible way. So that was the thinking behind the new book. Yeah. So the, the internet, a very interesting place for various reasons. I think you can, you, a, re, a really great use resource if you can find the right information, but as yeah. you say, there's in, in and amongst the, the right information, there's lots and lots of the wrong information there as, as well. So I think having, having a single resource, which people can, can trust and know, and know, know that that information is, is useful and, and correct is a, is an extremely important venture. Now mm. you mentioned, um, COVID and the impact that that had on, on, on your book. And obviously COVID has had a, a huge impact on society in general. As we, we record this today, the FCA, the, the regulator of the city, has, has published some new guidance financial for financial services firms on um, vulnerability and treatment of vulnerable customers. And we've, we've seen during this, this pandemic that vulnerability has increased substantially. So a 15% increase in the number of people who display vulnerable characteristics between March and October 2020 and it, this really staggered me when I when I when I first heard this over half of the country now uh, display some sort of vulnerable characteristic at the moment which is just shocking and was a real eye-opener certainly mm. to me personally anyway and young people have been disproportionately hit as well haven't they so we've seen a a 40% increase in in vulnerability among 18 to 34 year olds again according to to the to the FCA, so young people who, as you as you touched on earlier, had been hit quite badly by the financial crisis and generally have been struggling with various financial issues have have been hit again, particularly in terms of their employment during during this period. So, what what do you think? What should young people think about at the moment when they find themselves in a in a difficult financial position? And how how do you balance the the short term? needs off with the the long-term savings needs at a time when when your finances are really going to be crunched mm, mm. well firstly I think the financial industry and anybody mm. that gives advice to young people in this area needs to be sensitive and aware of the issues that you've just outlined mm. and the fact that it will be very tough for young people for some time to come and that there may be a requirement for reparations to young people following this period, because I think young people have made huge sacrifices financially and personally for the greater good. 
And I think there needs to be some acknowledgement of that in public policy and also within the financial industry, because for far too long, young people have been pushed to the bottom of the pile. They've been neglected and ignored and exploited. And now, as young people hopefully come back out into society and the economy and help us build back better, they are going to be the politicians, the carers, the leaders, the thinkers of the future. And we need to make it clear to them that, that they, are, they, don't, they don't take second place to anybody else in society. They have equal rights and equal opportunities to everybody else in society. And they have the right to jobs that have decent pay that will allow them to live a comfortable lifestyle. And I think most young people, they are not asking for the moon. All they're asking for is the opportunity to earn their own living, to become financially independent, and to perhaps one day have some assets of their own. Because over the past 10 years, I think what we've seen is a whole generation locked out of asset ownership. And this is partly because interest rates have been so low and partly because the effects of QE have meant that the price of assets has risen enormously and out of reach of most young people. And that's very much been to the benefit of older, more affluent citizens. So it's really entrenched a lot of inequalities between the, the generations. So I think we have to be very aware of that backdrop, first of all, before we say to young people that if they are in any kind of financial difficulty, then somehow just budgeting better and, and saving more money is going to magically get them out of that, that problem. It's not. We need a much wider, more comprehensive uh, package of measures, really, to help that generation. But you know, the blog's motto is don't get mad, get informed. And in, in the book as well, I very much want to convey to young people that as much as they have a reason to feel mad, what's the point? Because ultimately, it's, it's what I think millennials have learned over the past 10 years is that you've got to look after yourself because no one else will. And that really applies to your money as well. You have to figure out what do I need to do both to make myself secure in the here and now, but also to take care of the future? And it's really hard to have both those timeframes in mind. And this is the biggest struggle that young people have. How can I make sure that everything is okay in the here and now, but also make sure that I'm not going to be poor in my retirement, make sure that I'm achieving some long-term goals? It's a very difficult balance to strike. But all I would say to younger people is that if you become better informed about what's out there and not just through the Internet, through, you know, hopefully independent, uh, genuinely informed sources of information. I think if you do that, then you can you can discover a lot more choices and options available to you. And I think this is one of the reasons why I've written the book. It's to try and help young people understand that if they invest, then they are creating more choices and options and they have this potential to make their own life better, but also to improve society and the economy and the world and to you know make the lives of hopefully everyone better, if that doesn't sound too utopian and cheesy. But I think if you tap into that, then young people will be inspired and galvanized to do what they have to do to sort out their finances in the here and now. And it's all quite basic and it's all common sense, really. Young people understand mm. that they have to budget, that they have to, you know, keep an eye on what they're spending their money on. Um, you know, don't say the words avocado brunch because you will get punched <laughs> by any millennial now if you ever say those words. And quite rightly, uh, not that I'm endorsing violence, but it's just a very, very frustrating idea that if we just give up all these little fripperies and somehow we magically create the deposit for our first home, um, it's a lot more challenging 
challenging than that. And I think that if we just try to encourage young people to understand the difference between saving and investing and when saving is appropriate and when investing is appropriate, um, then they can start to find a way through. Yeah. And you're and you're living you're living proof that you can from a point of little to to no knowledge on financial services back in 2011 you can build up your own war chest of of knowledge around how products work and the different options available in order to get yourself in, in a good position and i i think you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right there's there's, there's two two parts to this there's in individuals um whatever financial position you may be in it makes sense to look at your finances engage with your finances and understand where you are it's about allocating it in a in a way that best suits your your priorities so mm. let's round off um with some top tips so if you're a, if you're a younger person and you're you're just getting on the saving and investing journey or if you're in that position where you've just built up a bit of a pot and you're starting to to wonder how to how to maximize those gains and perhaps look beyond saving for a house into, into the future what what would your what, what would your top tips be be for somebody who's who's in that early savings position um well firstly if you have already started saving and you just want to take it to the next level um if you are perhaps wanting to get on the housing ladder and you're frustrated by low interest rates then you need to get on the lifetime ISA because you're getting up to £1,000 free from the government every year towards your first home. It's an absolute no-brainer. And you'll need to be careful because at the moment, there is no really punishing exit penalty on the lifetime ISA, but this might be reintroduced in the future. Hopefully not. Um, but if it, if it were to come back, then you'd need to be aware of the fact that you would be effectively paying a penalty of 6.25% were you to withdraw any money from the LISA prior to buying your first home. Um, but if you're really committed to that goal and you know that you can keep that money locked up uh, in the LISA, then it's, it's definitely the right option for you. And then beyond that, engage with your workplace pension. Find out if you could contribute a little bit more and then if your employer might agree to contribute a little bit more, known as uh, match contributions, because even though one or 2% doesn't sound like a lot now, it'll make a huge difference in the long term. So then try to find out if your workplace pension is invested in what I would describe as an adventurous or aggressive way, because I think one of the big concerns surrounding default workplace pensions, which are the default options that all people who are automatically enrolled into pensions are put into, is that they are not investing aggressively enough for young people's timeframes, because the basic truth of the stock market is that the longer you have to invest, the more risk that you can take. Now, obviously, that's not, you know, I've simplified it a lot there. And there are lots of issues to consider when thinking about your risk appetite. Um, it's not the case that you can take huge uh, you know, wild risks just because you're investing for many decades. But it's certainly true that you can move up the risk spectrum a lot more if you've got that, you know, longer time frame to play with. So ask yourself, have I got the right mix of equities and bonds in my default workplace pension? And you can find out that information quite easily. Um, and if not, and if you're not quite satisfied with that mix, then you can switch into something that may be a little bit more adventurous for your time frame. I would also say that um, you have to think about the medium term as well as the long term. And we've talked about the fact that pensions are incredibly important, but I would say that younger people also need to have 
a medium term fund for those goals that are not necessarily decades away, but might be um, more pressing in 10 or 20 years time. And that can include obviously your first home, but it can also include other things, you know, setting up a business, you know, wanting to send your children to private school, uh, wanting to go on a fabulous trip around the world, whatever it might be. I think young people can get quite hung up on, you know, goals and feeling like if they're not achieving goals in life, then they're somehow failing. And the financial industry can also be quite off-putting when it talks about goals. So instead of thinking about goals, maybe just think dreams. Because I find that when I when I think about my dreams, it makes it all a little bit more kind of inspirational for me rather than pressurizing. And then I think about how I can invest for those dreams through my stocks and shares ISA. And the reason why I use the stocks and shares ISA is because obviously it's it's tax efficient. I'm not paying any tax in my ISA if I make a certain amount of profits. I won't have to pay capital gains tax. I won't have to pay a certain amount of tax on my dividend income and so on. So it's really the best option, the first port of call, if you are investing for the medium term. And then more generally, you know, there are no, you know, there's no kind of fixed rule book for investing. It really is about what you're comfortable with, how much risk you're prepared to take, how much homework you're prepared to do as well, um, how much time and energy you, you can put into your investing and if you're a bit time poor and you're not sure about where to go or, or what to do then going to a financial advisor or a robo advisor might be the right call for you but if you feel more confident and you want to take more control then you can invest yourself through a platform and then you can make those decisions but I would say try not to treat investing like a game and if it starts to feel like gambling then you're not doing it the right way. I think investing should feel a bit like eating healthy food or reading an intellectual book. You know, it's not the most thrilling thing in the world, but it should feel very satisfying and it should feel like you're doing the right thing. Um, so try to stay away from those very sexy, high return investments that you're seeing touted online, because if something sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. Um, so then you come back to all the classic principles of good investing, which is to diversify, to be patient and to remember that this is a long game. And, uh, you know, if you're forgetting to check your investments for a few weeks or months, uh, then that's one occasion in life where actually being a bit forgetful is a good thing. Uh, actually, you are giving your investment portfolio the best chance to grow and, and achieve what you need it to achieve so you can so you can go out and 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 get on with life because for me investing is not about making lots of money it's just a means to an end and a way for you to um in, enjoy life and get more out of it yeah i like that get engaged nourish yourself by doing something good with your money by saving and investing and save and invest for your dreams i think those are three really good messages for people people to take away um quickly just before we we wrap up where where can everybody get your book iona well, they can get my book from Amazon. It's called Own It, How Our Generation Can Invest Our Way to a Better Future. But if you don't want to go through Amazon, you can also buy it from Waterstones or directly from my publisher, Harriman House. Fantastic. Iona Bain, thank you very much. Thank you. So Iona's book, Own It, is out now if you are interested. Finally, though, the bit we're all interested in, it's time for Jenny to unleash this week's lighthearted money story. She's clearly been watching Cash in the Attic way too much over lockdown. Jenny, tell us all about it. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, move aside art and wine. There's a new physical asset in town for David Dickinson to keep an eye on. 
loveantiques.com are having an auction of what they've dubbed Pantiques, future antiques from the COVID-19 pandemic. Their in-house valuers have determined a list of items from the past year that are likely to rise in value over the next century, making 2120 the year to head to the auction house. Just as World War I memorabilia is now valuable, memorabilia from the past year will also become valuable as collector's items. In 100 years, these will qualify as antiques. Among the items predicted to be the most valuable are a signed first edition of Captain Tom Moore's book, which is expected to be worth £25,000 in 100 years, face masks from celebrities, which could make you 15 grand, and briefing podiums from 10 Downing Street, estimated at £4,000 a pop. Government letters about the pandemic, vaccine cards, newspapers from the 23rd of March 2020, and even used COVID-19 testing kits are estimated to be worth hundreds of pounds. So make sure you store them somewhere cool, dark and dry so you can pass on these strange family heirlooms. <laughs> used, used testing kits. Mm, yeah, keep what them. What is going on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got loads I've, of those, but I stick them straight in the bin. I don't. I don't know about anyone else, but I think I think I'd rather forget the past twelve months. I don't think I want any memorabilia to remind me of the twelve months I spent locked inside my uh, my flat. Can you imagine Tim Wanacott just having a look and giving a, a suggested evaluation? Yeah. Not of any of my face masks. They're way too grubby. Definitely. It's not a good look. Well, that's all from us this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. So next week, we're going to feature an expert talking about the financial problems that women face when getting divorced. So catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.